Welcome to episode 96 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. The Sentientism worldview answers those two deep questions by committing to evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I talk to Coral Sands, known online as Vegan Atheist Coral. Coral is an aspiring writer, an animal rescue volunteer and donor, and she also runs a bunny boarding and grooming business. She's an ex-Mormon atheist and a meat and potatoes girl turned vegan. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 95 others. Don't forget to work through that back catalogue if you've found us recently. Uh, Every one of you that reviews and rates or shares our podcast with a friend helps us nudge a few more people towards more compassionate, rational thinking. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info, where you can sign up for email updates or just search for sentientism on your favorite social media platform. You'll be made very welcome in all of our global online communities. They're open to anyone interested in these ideas, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Coral. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you doing? Yeah, great, great. Well, it's such a pleasure to talk to you almost live. You know, our conversations have only been in the Twitter DMs and group conversations so far. It's been purely tech, so it's great to see you and talk to you as well. Um, It's so so exciting. Yeah, thank you for joining this series of Sentientist Conversations. And as you know, um, in a way, we're focusing these conversations on trying to answer the two deepest and I think most important philosophical questions. What's real? and what and who matters. Uh, and I have an obvious bias in the way I answer those questions. You know, the, the clue is in the title because I'm trying to popularize this very simple pluralistic worldview called sentientism, which says when it comes to thinking about what's real, let's take a naturalistic approach using evidence and reason. And when it comes to what and who matters, again, the clue is in the name, you know, sentience is what counts. So you know, any sentient being that has the capacity to suffer or flourish, we should grant them compassion, moral consideration. Um, but I'm talking to people in these conversations who agree and disagree. So it'll be fascinating to understand your own philosophical journey and where you've got to now. So, um, yeah, it's great to talk. And this is one of my favorite uh, conversations because it does have wide ranging um, repercussions. And so I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah, likewise. And I, I, that's partly my motivation behind this thing, right? because it seems like quite a lot of philosophy can be a bit niche, it can be a bit abstract. And the philosophers reassure me they need to do that work, right, to make sure the technical underpinnings are really rock solid and everything works. But I struggle sometimes to engage in those things. I think sometimes the most basic questions are, you know, the most important. And to be honest, most philosophers have got them both wrong. So uh, <laughs> you and I can put them right. But I, t- I also agree that the implications basically touch everything, right? If, it, you know, if, if it's not about, if, you, if you're understanding reality wrong, and your moral scope is incorrect or excludes some beings that shouldn't be excluded, you know, that's the root to all problems, right? So, you know, what's real and what, what, what is value and what really matters seem to be two central questions that we need to get right. So, and it makes my interviews really easy because I just ask the same two questions over and over and let my guests talk. So, Absolutely. It's good for a lazy uh, interviewer. <laughs> we, we, nobody will ever call you a lazy interviewer. Well, thank you. Thank you. Right, before we get onto those two big questions, um, how would you best introduce yourself and the things you do for people who don't know you? So for those that don't know me, I'm around the internet as vegan atheist coral. And I chose those um, that nomiker for uh, a very specific reason, because I wanted to start conversations. Um, so I would say back in my past, I was certainly um, 
like many Americans, I grew up in a very religious household. Mine was a little bit different because we were actually Mormon. Um, so my family is also a military family. My, my dad was in the Coast Guard and later on me and my husband also joined the Coast Guard. Duty, responsibility was very much built and ingrained into who we were. And that responsibility to care for others, because we say in the Coast Guard, we save lives, not take lives. And so just that simple mindset of, 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 you know, just at the basics, everything in my worldview was about that. And I didn't really quite see that I was being a bit hypocritical. <laughs> I grew up and I used to embrace the theme of that I was a meat and potatoes girl. And uh, very, it, but I still felt that I was a, a, a good person. And so through my search of, um, you know, religion and philosophy and even psychology and things like that, I actually kind of slowly pivoted <laughs> yeah. from being a very religious Mormon person to being uh, someone who is, you know, spiritual. And then I moved over and um, was finally atheistic, where I felt that um, most likely we probably could say that we're agnostic, you know, you can't, it, the, the chances that we'll be able to, to prove definitively whether or not there is a, a deity or gods or gods is quite low, in my opinion, just for the fact that, um, well, how do you prove God and not God? Like, it's unanswerable. Uh, you can't show me a universe that has a God and a universe that does not have a God so that I can compare the two and determine it. And once I kind of did that, I, I kind of, it just was a natural progression to like, oh, okay, so what do we actually know then? When I finally became atheist, um, and I choose that that word because of the fact that it starts conversations. I don't tend to be the type of person to proselytize. Uh, I want people to come to me that want to have these conversations yeah. because I know that they can be very they can shake people because that's at the core of their beliefs, and I. I'm okay with shaking people's beliefs, but I want them to be open to those conversations. Uh, and most of the time, they're still going to come with their defenses up. This is where I kind of started looking at like the street epistemology and stuff like that to help me with those conversations. Because I also wanted to have conversations that were really respectful of how people are you know, what those core beliefs are, but get them to also question it because I had a moment where I questioned mine and I felt like that would be something that would be fun for people to, to do. Didn't realize how much that could, <laughs> you know, mess with people. But then I started having conversations about um, veganism and that was one place as if as if you didn't have enough challenges talking about religion <laughs> right 
And, but a lot of people were starting to point out the fact that I say that I'm a good person and that I love animals and yet I was eating them and I hadn't quite made the connection of the, the, the compassion and empathy that I share for everything else. I felt like I was still giving it to those animals, especially since I was very deep in, um, I, I'm a, I do animal rescue and I, um, help out with about 10 different rabbit rescues in the Chicago land area. Wow. And, and so I remember the distinct moment that I had that switch. And that was while I was doing animal rescue and some friends came over and started making Hassan Pfeffer stew jokes. And I'm like, no. No, these are are fantastic creatures with fan- these amazing personalities, and I get so much joy out of caring for them and helping them. Why would you even joke like that? And that was that was the start of everything. Like, well, why do I pick dogs and cats and rabbits? Well, why not pigs and cows and even squid and fish like what what becomes that that determining factor and so i had to go back to scratch again just like i did with religion and say well what do we really know about this yeah yeah and so it sounds like if you would to Put this as a sort of life mission. The thing you really want to do is is to try and have productive conversations, particularly around those two, you know, deeply important topics. And you do that through YouTube. You do that through your writing. You do through that through your online presence. And in addition to that, you're um, you know running your own rabbit rescue and um, volunteering with other other rabbit rescues as well. So you're doing some very hands-on direct work too. Is that a good summary of sort of what you're up to now? A bit. Uh, I don't own an, a rabbit rescue, um, but oh, okay. I, I own a, a bunny boarding business and I do grooming and things like oh, that. Okay. But one of the things that uh, we did as soon as we set up is we knew we wanted to contribute to our community. So we actually give portions of all of our sales to the rescues that we work with. And um, we've been in the community, we're working on several big things, including some expos and things with veterinarians and uh, the rescues, and hopefully the community will will join us as well. So yeah, we definitely have our fingers in yeah. <laughs> a bunch of different things, but yeah, definitely the biggest things is in our in my writing. I feel as a writer, one of the best things. And I guess, again, I get this from my childhood. Some of my favorite TV shows were the ones that had morals and ethics and philosophical questions hidden in them. Yeah, there's a message. Uh, Absolutely. I was I was definitely a Trekkie growing up. So Star Trek, the original series. Oh, I just remember there's these episodes where there was this guy and he was half white and half black. And the other one was half black and half white. And they were literally fighting to the death. There was literally no one else alive 
except those two guys from their species and they still could not get over their anger so like those types of episodes are so fantastic to me and i wanted to write things that did the same thing to my readers yeah where they actually say well what what about this scenario is making me so uncomfortable because we are living our lives doing it so what those themes yeah i i do put into my stories a lot (laughs) cool well we'll come back to that because we're gonna the final question we ask is thinking about the future and ways we can sort of pull levers and make change happen it'll be fascinating to dig into how you try and do that through your writing um you know the modern day Gene Roddenberry slapping people around the face with ethical messages in your stories. Um, so that would be good to come back to. And you've given us a great intro to, I guess, how you're going to answer both of these two central philosophical questions, but it'll be good to dig a bit deeper as well. So on the first one of those, what's real? As you said, you grew up in uh, the Mormon faith. Um, and I think you're the first person from a sort of Mormon origin that I've spoken to in this series so far. So for people who aren't familiar with the Mormon faith, it would be really interesting to understand you know, what that meant to you, what you believed, what were its implications? And then we can come on to the story as to, you know, how and why you started to question that. Absolutely. I think at the core of Mormonism is they put a lot of emphasis on um, this is the one true church. This is um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And saying those words that very specific way is uh, on purpose. So you don't minimize, um, you know, the faith. So the, the, the books and its doctrine is this is the one true word of God. And you have like every Mormon carries around with them the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, and, you know, the, their, their core documents and stuff like that. And so it is something that encompasses every bit of how you live your life. And yeah, it's not just a, it's not one of those religions like the one I grew up in, where it sort of sits in the background and you can sort of drop in a couple of times if a year, if you like, and it doesn't really drive your life. It's, it is almost the defining essence of the way you and your family and your community live, Absolutely. right? I mean, every Sunday we would go to our Sunday day was church. You spent four hours in, uh, you know, just listening to the the guy speak. And then after you go to your Sunday school or young women's or whatever. And uh, so you have, you sit there for four hours listening to them preach, and then you go to the school section of it, where then they, again, for another hour to two hours ingrain that. So you're like spending six hours at in this religious area, speaking on these points. And uh, it really does become your whole essence that we also had. And that wasn't the only time we, we went. I mean, we always went on Wednesdays as well. You had meetings that you had to go to. And uh, I just remember most most of my childhood, I felt like I was in church. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And they also had a lot of impact in our day-to-day life where 
like for instance they have a lot of emphasis on family which is a good thing um it, until you have people in your family that don't have the same beliefs and they're very good at shunning and like doing it's like a a, a way of ignoring type shunning that can be quite damaging to to the people that are now instead of being in the in group they are now in the out group yeah uh, it's it's really it's really a tough religion um a lot of internal self pressure too because you believe that you know you have the holy ghost and you know you're you're constantly measuring yourself against what you think jesus would want you to do and um it's it's a lot of pressure for people yeah yeah and, and it's it's quite a, a modern religion as well you know in the context yes. of you know christianity or islam or you know zoroastrianism or some of the you know really ancient ones um and how would you summarize the sort of core essential beliefs you know the five or ten things that every mormon is expected to believe what are the sort of essential most important things about reality that mormons insisted you believe well uh the the first is that it was established by Joseph Smith. Um, Joseph Smith is, uh, though most people don't know, um, he uh, was a bit of a, a treasure seeker, um, but the Mormons don't believe in about that. They believe that he went out and he found golden plates. Um, some stories have angel, you know, uh, two or three or four angels um but uh the the angels were the ones that showed him where the plates were and so he took this uh golden plates back and he translated them um some say using the omen in the thrumman or something like that or you know there's these two seer stones that you use and uh, so, some believe that he didn't actually use the stones. Um, some say he looked in a hat and was like looking through the stones. There's other ones where he is just looking in the hat and there's no, he wasn't actually looking at the plates. It's very interesting that there's lots of different variations of the story. But the main thing is that he, Joseph Smith translated these plates and that later became the um the book of mormon and then later on um they did the doctrine and covenants and the pearl of great price um so those are the main things that the the church believes and that the people of the the church believe there's yeah the divine lot, texts yeah the divine texts and these are the texts that um every mormon uses to to guide their lives um they are um if you have a question about your life you look to those um and, and how do how do they relate to the you know the the bible of i guess standard christianity well the you know the the question because of what i know now um i know a lot of the text has been almost like ripped off from the bible yeah. so um but most mormons don't think about that they think that you know the the you have the original 
uh, Old Testament and then you have the New Testament and then you have the Book of Mormon. And that is the most up to date. That is the so one. So superseded. Yeah. It's yeah. like, yeah. Okay. We have the yeah. new version now. We don't really need to worry too much about. And honestly, like when I was younger, I never looked at any of the Old Testament or the New Testament. It wasn't until I was probably in my teens that I first started looking at it. And it's not sh- it's not shocking that soon thereafter, I also um, started looking at my religion and whether or not it was was yeah. true or not um specifically because of the fact that on the book of mormon when you open up that first page there's actually some egyptian hieroglyphs and i loved egyptology ever since i was a little kid so seeing that he was able to translate these into the word of god was amazing cuz back then we didn't know too much about egyptology and those hieroglyphs and stuff like that and when i found out that those translations were nothing like what those actually said that was one yeah. of the first little another difficult moment and and on the on the supernatural stuff if you like is is most of the rest of it roughly in line with christianity so there's one god you know there's jesus as the son of god sacrificed for for our sins uh you know i guess a sort of creationist timeline or something different heaven and hell oh yeah i don't want to take you through the whole thing right but just uh, what are the any of the other essentials you know beliefs that it's interesting because there is a, um, they do believe in the Trinity, you know, you have God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost, um, and they are three and one. Um, that is a very essential core belief of Mormon, Mormonism. Um, there are multiple types of Mormons. So you have a f- more fundamentalist Mormons, and then you have more uh, progressive Mormons, I guess you could say. And depending on which um, which tract you follow will depend on whether or not you believe in young earth creationists or old earth creationists. Um, because it is very easy in Mormonism to kind of back up your beliefs with God was the one who made, who created this. And it doesn't really matter if it happened in six days or in 6 billion years or whatever uh, years it is. The, the biggest thing that you need to take away from this story is that it was created by God. Yeah. Makes sense. Okay. And, and, so it's it's interesting because there are you know there's strong echoes of Christianity in a sense it is a another sort of sect or subset of Christianity but there's some distinctive differences that flow through as well and and you talked about the you know the ethical and the practical implications you know there's strong ritual there's patterns there's worship there's a really strong focus on the family um, but then there's a sharp edge to that as well and it's a weird it's an interesting mix because in a sense one of the things in all of these conversations we talk about is that how there is a rich vein of compassion that flows through most religions, but often it is quite selective or it's conditional or it's constrained in some way. And this seems like another example where, you know, there's clearly rich compassion for the family and the community, right? We really care about each other. That's super important, right? So you can see that as a positive, rich, positive flowing thing. I think you can also see with the way Mormons interact with the wider world, 
yes, there's proselytization and, you know, the expectation that you're going out and spreading the word and that's an obligation on everyone to participate in and, you know, famous and everyone sort of knows how that works. But that style of engagement feels quite compassionate as well. It's not hectoring, it's not attacking, it's not threatening. You know, Mormons just are nice, right? You, when you meet them, they just seem like nice people. And then you've got this, and then you've got this other challenge of, you know, if you're in the community and you step out of line, then there's a, a brutality unveiled, I guess. So yeah, that's my that's sort of my sense of Yeah, but Mormons care a lot about how they are perceived, how the church is perceived. Um, so it very much matters uh, how you dress, how you uh, how you present yourself, um, who you hang around with. So all of those perceptions, um, it does not it does not matter if they are true or not. What matters is how people perceive you. Yeah, and that the is nice important. Short haircut. Yep, nice short haircuts. You you need uh, like. The men would, of course, wear the 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 trousers with the white uh, sh- button down shirt with their, you know, with their ties. And it's going to be a black tie. It's not going to be a funky tie. You know, it's the 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 women are going to wear uh, modest clothing. Um, you're going to wear a dress to church or a skirt and a shirt, you are not going to wear pants to church. Um, it like, there's a very, all the way down to how you dress and how you look, everything is a perception of who you are. And so it is very important when you go out into the world that that perception, you are a reflection of the church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints. And, uh, especially if you're going out, every person that you talk to, you are a representative of the church. And so that's why um, how you speak and how you interact with people matter as well. And why they also work so hard to make sure that that perception of the church is their narrative. And, and that uh, is one of the main reasons why they take young children and send them off on missions away from their families and um, make them go through. And they could be in different countries. They'll be across the United States from where their families are, and they'll go on these missions and um, proselytize. But what also happens is they're isolated. And because they're isolated, they're able to do some strong reinforcements of what their religious beliefs are. Is it? I, I might be overplaying this, but it almost feels like, from the perspective of the institutions of the church, even the parents within the community are seen as a potential threat. You know, there's a there's a risk of some disruption of diff- divided loyalties of, you know, other things creeping in. Hence, that let's separate them, give them the pure message, drive that in, really make sure this is locked down and tightly managed. Is that? It's not necessarily just the parents. It's also your friends, the friends that you grow up with. Most of, most of the time, if you grow up in a Mormon family, most of your friends are going to be Mormon. But there's also sometimes friends that are in the community that might be your next door neighbor that might not be in the faith. And so there is a big danger that um, those people can actually give you doubts and doubts is actually something that is some something that is 
not shied away from with the church, but they have you actually speak and give your testimony. And it is seen like as something that is really good. And um, they, they encourage you to share your testimony with other peoples in the church. And I remember being a little girl I was a little girl going up and sharing my testimony like all the other adults because I wanted to be just like them. But to telling why that we believe that Jesus Christ is, you know, or that the church is true and that, you know, the reason why, you know, the church is true and that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior and all of those things, just those words just come out again because you say it so many times. But and when you're on these missions, again, you're separated from your friends, you're separated from your family. And so even, and it is very closely monitored uh, to make sure that there's almost, almost like a, the other people that you're on the mission with are almost like snitches. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they often talk about uh, whether or not um, they think someone's having doubts. And um, when you have doubts, you're supposed to be taking it to the elders and talking to them about it and, you know, reading your book. And there's, two, and there's two ways of thinking about that. You know, we should be open about our doubts, right? And you and I would agree with that today. It feels like a constructive, open, positive thing because yes. we should have doubts and work them through. This doesn't sound like that sort of openness to doubts it sounds like you're expected to snitch on yourself and when if you have doubts you're expected to tell us about them so that we can bring you back into line with where you absolutely need to be um so that it's not a free consideration of open-minded thinking about doubts it's a almost snitching on yourself and then getting back in line is that is that unfair or no i i i believe it's very much like that i'm i think some mormons might feel that uh, that's a little unfair but it, it was at least my experience that I felt that pressure. There's a big social pressure to make sure that, you know, doubts are supposed to be okay. So I should be able to say that this is what is really bothering me about the Book of Mormon is these things. And the church even has, uh, what can we say? The church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Church, they have on their website a lot of um, a lot of their history. Uh, and if anybody has doubts, it's there for anybody to look at. They're not hiding anything. Yeah, it's, yeah. But it's chances almost, it's, are. A, it's the presenting this sense of openness as a shield in a way, mm -hmm. which is ironic. Yeah. Yeah. Because well, so, you don't look at it. So, you don't so, look at it. <laughs> so this is quite an impressive machine, right? When you think about social norms and patterns and uh, frankly, indoctrination and compliance and the pressure, um, you're pretty weird, right? Because you um, you broke away from it. So what was that process like for you? When did the crack start to appear and, and how did it play out? And, and I guess we can frame this question in a couple of ways, because with many of my guests, with some of them, it was, you know, evidence and reason, and there are inconsistencies in these religious books, and I learned about some of the other religions, and they can't always be true, and the facts just don't make sense, right? This feels much more like a human fiction than, you know, supernatural perfect thing. So it was evidence and reason, right, facts. For others, it was, they were sort of okay with that, they just sort of accepted it, but there were some ethical and moral things where they're like, this just doesn't feel right you know whether it's homophobia sexism racism anti-semitism threatening small children with burning in hell for eternity if they make some mistake you know and they're like hold on this 
whoever's saying this right just doesn't intuitively feel right to me so that was more of an ethical drive that where the crack started for some it was both so yeah was it mine what was, was it for you okay so mine was i moved and that sounds weird but it was a it was an enlightening experience as i said i was in the military and most of the time it, that i grew up uh it was on the west coast and the culture of the West Coast is very laid back, you know, California hippie. I was definitely a hippie child. I believed in love. Love bombing was very big for me. I would be the type of child that would go up and, and sing the Sesame Street song, you know, because I wanted to make somebody smile uh, and bring joy to their lives. And do you want to do a little rendition now or is that? <laughs> No, I will, I will pass on that. I do not have a singing voice at all. You could all, be the first but... person to sing on Sentinel's Conversations. And, anyway, sorry. Um, no worries. I, I, I hope, though, that uh, I do. I, I, that aspect of my life has not changed. I definitely love to see people smile. So, um, But I was about, I think, 13 or 14 years old, so a very impressionable age uh, when we moved down south to the Bible Belt and we moved to Alabama, Mobile, Alabama. And the culture shock was out of control. I can imagine. Was it like different, a different country in a way? It legitimately felt that way. I, <laughs> there's so many times where I was just hit a wall of what the of how different I was than the people that I was around. And I'll give a few examples. Uh, one of them was I was, a, as I said, I was a very hippie, like live and let live. Even as a Mormon, I, I still believed that, you know, they might be wrong, but um, I still believe that um, I wanted people to still accept me and like me and, you know, perceive me as a good person. And then when I got to the school, I went to a primarily it was a primarily African-American school and there was, I was one of 11 uh, Caucasian people and I got off the bus that first day and walked straight up to the first group of people I saw and was like, hi, my name is Coral. How are you? And they looked at me like I had done gone crazy. <laughs> and uh, I remember one person just looked at me and was like, your people is over there. And I was like, what on earth are you talking about? I'm like, you're my people. <laughs> like, you know, because uh, to me, I was like, I don't see color. I don't see. Yeah. I was so ignorant of because in my in my worldview, racism didn't ex it didn't exist anymore. That was taken care of with Martin Luther King yeah. in the 60s. We're done like, with that, right? Yeah. We're done, yeah. And I had no clue. I had no clue of what I was stepping into. And I looked over at the the white kids that was over there, and they were they looked like they were skater kids. And I'm like, they're definitely not my <laughs> cup of tea. And I was like, yeah, no, they're not my people. <laughs> 
you know, I just moved here and I was just like trying to be friends and I immediately got caught in a wall and I didn't understand. And then I remember one of the first times we went into the um, cafeteria for lunch. And one thing to that most people might not know about Mormonism is we believe we believed <sighs> it just hit you the, 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 yeah it's still in there we believe that the that the relationship with jesus christ is a very personal one and that you do not you know shout out and force your beliefs on other people and when i went into this this cafeteria they um a lot of the people were not eating yet and i just sat down and started eating my food and this girl <laughs> walked up from behind me and said, excuse me, uh, what are you doing? And I was like, hi, I'm new, I'm eating, <laughs> you know? And she's like, we pray here. And I was like, cool, <laughs> have fun doing that. And she's like, no, you do not understand. You need to stand, we pray here. And I was like, I already prayed, but thank you. And she was like, no. And she yanked me behind and I fell backwards. And I was just like, what on earth is going on here? And they all stood, everybody, like as a group and prayed loudly. And I I was like, what is going on? And I saw so many different things like and this was, you know, most of the people down in that area is either Southern Baptist or um, there's one that starts with a P. I always forget uh, Pro- Protestant, Protestant, I think. Um, uh, they, so there's some very big beliefs and they are just as sure that their beliefs are true. And so I, in all of my wonderful glory and smart, uh, smart aleckness, decided that I was going to go out and prove that my beliefs were true because I go to the one true church and I read the one true word of God and they are all wrong. So of wow. course, because what a way I to knew- introduce yourself to the new school. Right, right. So I decided to go on a mission to study, but I wasn't just going to like, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I started having debates on the bus and other things when people were talking to me and I'd be like, really, would Jesus want you to do that and become this really judgy person about, um, about these very, what I saw very hypocritical things where these people would sit there and do drugs and they would drink and they would do, they would steal and do all types of really horrible things. And then they would go to church on Sunday and I didn't understand it. Well, you can wipe so, the slate clean on Sunday, right? So you can right. do whatever you like during the week. <laughs> right, which I didn't believe was true. I was like, there's no way that that would be true. You need to be a good person. And that's not being a good person. And so at least in my mind, I, of course, um, but yeah, it was. So I decided in all of my uh, genius that I at 14 years old was going to prove that there was not only a God, but that the God that they believe in is wrong and that I was right and that the church was the one true church and all of those things. And so I started studying 
and really, really studying not only the Book of Mormon, but then I started reaching out because I was like, oh, well, maybe all the religions are connected and maybe that there is like maybe the parts of their religion is true and they just are wrong about these other bits. Yeah. They've glimpsed part of the truth, but I need to just correct yeah. them on the rest. Yeah. And then there was a, a incident and I don't know, you know, I was young at the time and I wasn't in on all of the things, but my, my dad refused to let me go to the church and, you know, the, the church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints, which I was not, I was like, why, what is going on? I uh, found out later on, there were some accusations uh and my my dad did not feel safe with us going to that church and that's the reason why so there was actually another person in dad's unit that would actually pick me up and drive me to their to their church which was in a different ward um we call our our region wards yeah Yeah. (laughs) and um i was only able to go to church with her and because of that not going to church every Sunday, every Wednesday, and seeing my parents also pull away and no longer start going. By 16, I was uh, I was studying Buddhism and Taoism and Jainism, and I was uh, just soaking in all of the various myths and histories and things like that. that so you weren't just doing the Abrahamic stuff and Christianity no. and Islam. You went to Eastern religions and philosophies as well and the whole lot. Uh, I was sure. Yeah, yeah. I was sure that there was no doubt in my mind that all of these people believe in something. So there has to be like an ultimate truth or something. The big capital T truth must be out there. And I was starting with a presupposition that God was real. Yeah. And I was starting to, as I started searching, I actually stayed in that spiritual sect well on into my 20s and so so did your parents in a sense drift away from or leave mormonism at the same time or would, did they just have a challenge with that specific church but they stayed mormons or because i guess that sets the context for um you know i've talked to such a wide variety of people and meant most of my guests not all have left a religious context but for some like me it was pretty easy right it was a background thing wasn't particularly challenging it just sort of drifted away and that was it right moved on and for other people it's been psychologically socially and and sometimes physically dangerous right for them to to leave that um so how was where was it on the spectrum for you as you went through that process of shifting from you know basically being a mormon to a more broad sense of spirituality there's something out there but i'm no longer a mormon Mom and mom and dad stayed in the Mormon context pretty much until that incident happened. And I'm not sure exactly what had happened, but there was a big break at that point. I stayed Mormon for uh, at least a few more years after that. Um, I didn't, you know, because we weren't in a community like we were in the West Coast, where it was around a lot of Mormons and stuff like that, they were easily able to break off at that point. Got it. Whereas if you'd and, done that on the West Coast, the shunning and the disconnection from the community would have would have been much more traumatic. Whereas where you were, 
exactly. it was less of an issue, right? It wasn't, it didn't define the community you were part of. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And yeah. so they were very easily, but that being said, uh, mom and dad have rejoined uh, in a few times since then, um, depending on where they live. Um, and uh, my older sister, uh, she and her family are, are, are devout and they have um, continued. She actually, when I was younger, was a Satanist for most of, of her teenage years. And she yeah. only wow. recently came into Mormonism uh, as an adult. That's a transition. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So, so you talked about a transition to that sort of sense of spirituality and it sounds like it was because you were learning about so many different perceptions of God or gods, the religious, the supernatural, you still have this core faith. If you like that, there was some sort of deity or something else out there. You learned about so many different perspectives. You know, you lost your commitment to one particular view, but you still kept that broader sense. So it was one of exploration, I guess, evidence and reason, different perspectives, you know, rather than maybe, you know, pushing back on some of the ethics you saw in Mormonism. Is that fair? It was more uh, intellectual exploration. Absolutely. It was definitely much more intellectual. I was, uh, as a teen, very big into the sciences. I uh, took and wanted to learn very much. Another Star Trekian, I guess, viewpoint is, you know, the search for knowledge is at the base of who we are as humans. And so we, I wanted to boldly go wherever that, that question was going to take me, I was going to go there. And so, 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 and this sort of spiritual stage wasn't obviously wasn't the end of your journey either, as you've said before. So how, did, why didn't you stay there? Because that's quite a comfortable place for many people. And some of my guests, right, they've left a religion because of either ethics or specific rejection of, you know, supernatural beliefs, but this sort of spiritual, but not religious space is quite comfortable because in a sense, you don't have the ethical constraints and the rules and the challenge and the social pressure. Um, you don't have very many specific supernatural things to believe in either, right? So you can say, well, I don't know, you know, this, I have this sense that there's something, right? You can be nice and vague, so it's quite comfortable. Um, but you still have this warm sense of transcendence and interconnectedness and deeper, richer meaning. So why didn't you stay in that comfortable place? You know, I'm not sure. <laughs> I didn't I find just it comfortable, kept, but well, yeah. I, I just kept searching and yeah. it just, it felt like I put on a bunch of different hats to see what would fit and none of them fit right. Um, and I don't know if it's because I grew up with Mormonism, but I just felt like it was nothing fit right. And I did stay in that space for a long time because, especially when I joined the military, because I didn't want to search anymore. I was like, okay. I don't know what the truth is. I'm probably not going to answer the question that people have been asking for 2000 years. So um, let me just, you know, live my life or whatever. And uh, it wasn't, it, it wasn't really until I hit probably my late twenties that I really started kind of reflecting more on um, who I was as a person and what I believed and why especially after uh, some of the beliefs that I had um, during that time, you know, just not only didn't feel right, but they were so far outside the norm. And I started asking, well, how do we know? Yeah. And once I hit that, how do we know what we know? It was hard to get out of that cycle. And I just kind of got stuck 
in that as a loop. And I was like, what, what do we know? How do we know it? And, um, you know, I started especially looking at philosophy a lot and brain in a vat got me stuck for a while yeah. <laughs> that one and the matrix when that came out in the 2000s that was another one like i was like but how do we know we're not in the matrix it's probably mind mind blowing stuff isn't it yeah oh, yeah absolutely i was i was stuck there for a bit and um i think that um you know digging into those philosophical questions um helped me move the rest of the way out because I was finally able to say, you know, I don't know if I'm a brain in a vet or if I am just a cog in the matrix. I, I can't know that. But what do I know? I know that I'm interacting with, with other people. I know that um, my sensory, I have sensory, uh, you know, senses and touches and i can i can sense these things my brain uh, is able to to calculate and to make decisions off of those things and so i just kind of that's where i was like well if we look at the basis of what we know and what we don't know we we really that's when i started looking at the god question and at that point i was like well i don't think i can know that you know and i certainly could spend the rest of my life looking but uh, I don't, I don't think that that would behoove me at this point because of the fact that, as I said, I have, I could, I don't have a, a, a universe with a God and without a God and how, yeah. how am I just and, compare the two? And when it comes down to it, there are a practically infinite number of things for which there's no good supporting evidence. So why would you pick that one to spend a load of time on? So yes. <laughs> that makes him a little dismissive, but that's sort of where I've ended up. You know, I've got to the point. Where, um, and I, and I, I think you and I are probably in a similar place on the God point in that, you know, people talk about different definitions of atheist. It's a term I'm pretty comfortable with, but, you know, technically maybe we're extreme agnostics where, yeah. you know, we still leave, you know, a little bit of wiggle room open as good naturalists. If there's new evidence, great. I'll listen to it. Yeah. But it's, you know, for me, it seems vanishingly unlikely along with, as I said, a functional infinite of other things people have just made up. Right. I feel like if it's a specific God, I feel like I'd feel comfortable saying, no, I'm definitely atheistic about, say, the Ab Abrahamic gods. But if we have, say, you know, but I don't know, there might be a, a, something out there that I, I don't know. So and when it comes to like deism, it's like, well, if you're going to call the universe God, then yeah, why I don't we just. That. Why don't we just call it the universe? You know, yeah, like we yeah. have a word for that, you know, so. And that does seem to be the endpoint of some philosophical debates where it's more about the semantics and the meaning of the word. It's, we're no exactly. longer really discussing the nature of reality anymore. We're just putting slightly different labels on things and fighting about those labels. And so that's an interesting journey because when we, you know, I centered this conversation really about this sort of question about naturalism being an approach where we use evidence and reason to try and understand things. And obviously a religion and the question of God is a central one that people go for, right? Because a naturalistic approach, I think, leads you or should lead you to uh, extreme agnosticism or atheism. But were there any other things outside religion and God that fell away at the same time? You know, were you or are you still into souls and spirituality and astrology? And, you know, was there, was there some other sort of stuff that isn't to do with religion that you've either kept or left behind at the same time when i was spiritual i believed in all of that stuff you know and um but when i started 
I would say into my atheism, I, 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 and I was looking at, well, what do we know and how do we know it? Those things easily fell away because the supporting evidence is, you know, minimal. Um, and so it, it was not, it was not hard for a lot of that stuff to go away, but I still kept on like a lot of my, my beliefs, like the fact that I was a meat and potatoes girl that aspect was core to to who I was, my sort of culture identity stuff. Yeah, yeah it, it was me. And yeah, I already stripped the religion from me. And this was something that I really held on, even though I had some doubts about about that even early on, because one of my closest friends is vegan and oh, she, was yeah, a, yeah. she was a huge influence later on in my life well let's come on to that second question because that's been fascinating to understand your sort of journey on epistemology and mormonism to atheism um and one of the challenges that some people who move into a naturalistic world you find is that you know whether or not you know they were, they were unfounded they were poorly justified they were sometimes bad right but there was actually an ethical system you got in mormonism or christianity or islam or whatever right and there were rules there were cultural norms there were rituals you know, lists of things to do, a perfect deity that we're supposed to, you know, what would Jesus do, as you said, right? So you, you have all of that stuff. Um, and I would argue that most of it is arbitrary and unfounded and often goes off the rails and undermines compassion. But, you know, there's some good bits in there too, fine. But whatever it is, you've sort of left that behind. So what the hell do we do now with, you know, ethics and morality? And there's obviously the trope that, you know, atheists can't be moral. So we're running around pillaging and uh, killing at random just to, that's for our own whims because we cannot be moral without a deity to punish us, of course. But in reality, there is still that process of sort of reconstructing or building. So, so there's two crazy questions here, but I think important ones. The first one is, you know, what is morality? What is it grounded on? Because if we don't have a God to judge and punish, what is morality? What is good and bad? What, uh, what is right and wrong? And then the second question, which you've hinted at already, because it'd be fascinating to understand, because I think it's another really weird journey here. You've broken out of another set of social norms is, is that question of moral scope and compassion and how people have gone through a journey of, you know, family, maybe thinking about the wider human species, humanity overall, and breaking that boundary and thinking about non-humans and your journey to veganism as well. So there's two questions there, the foundations of morality and then that journey of moral scope expansion. I think in the beginning, I was like, I am in a society where we have rules. And since I was in the military, I was uh, very good at sticking to this is the law. This is what this is your duty as a, you know, uh, your civic duty to your community. So I didn't really think about that morality question. But until I got to my atheism and at that point, I started also, I was actually in college during this time and we were taking a class and someone had mentioned about some studies that were being done on animals and how they were uh, working together, how these animals were working together in order to, to, as a social species and getting things done. And I thought that was so fascinating because I was like, well, if elephants can do that, and we know that dolphins are very smart, in some cases, smarter than some humans, then 
and our dogs, we know that they're very smart. And I remember watching a big documentary on dogs and, and how people had from ancient times, you know, brought these wolves and um, bred them and, you know, changed how they were. And I saw that change. And I was like, these, these dogs have like started this social contract with these people unknowingly, but they've kept it going. And it seemed to me that that was that social contract, which is not something that you like physically say, I accept this contract and I will do this and that, but right. And you sign your name to it. Like that's, that's not something that happens, but yet we still see time and time again, these stories of these animals saving another animal from drowning or, you know, whatever it is, or, um, and like, as I said, these there was also a study on gorillas, I think, and what they uh, and how they do their hierarchies. And I started studying like these various animal heart hierarchies and stuff. And when I say study, I mean, very lightly, yeah, yeah, but I yeah. just kind of looked into these things and these various documentaries that I could find. And, and you just, just get the sense that there's, you know, morality isn't just a human thing. There's at least yeah. a proto morality in you know, animals yeah. a long time before we came on the scene. And I was starting to see that there was there was compassion and and I knew that gorillas uh, were, you know, obviously we have uh, a shared ancestry with uh, the, the great apes. And so I was I, I knew that uh, just from, you know, our science background and stuff like that. And I said, well, if. If we can see that in other animals that are not in a shared ancestry of, you know, what could be primates or whatever, then does that mean that it is something that is inherent because of the social nature of the animal? And I kind of dug around that for a while. <laughs> yeah. And I was I was really lucky to interview Franz Deval, who's done some of the oh, you know seminal works. I, I can't remember which episode yes. number, but yeah, if you dig back through the back catalogue, um, I was lucky enough to talk to him about that sort of moral agency within the non-human world. It's yeah. Absolutely fascinating stuff, and I highly recommend it to anybody that might be interested. But the, there's a there's a there's a challenge there though, because many people share that fascination with non-human animals as moral agents, right? They care for their young, they care for their tribe and their pack, and there can be you know, altruistic behavior and cooperation. So that's saying, oh, wow, non-humans can be moral agents. Yep. A lot of people don't then make the link to them being moral patients too. So how did that play out for you? Well, there is a few different times. And I think, again, my Mormonism kind of, kind of, helped me get there because I felt like people were judging me at a certain point in my life, which sounds yeah, really as you mentioned, weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I remember uh, there was a few different incidences that really like made me kind of like, whoa, maybe I need to explore this about myself because maybe I'm wrong. Um, I mentioned before my best friend is vegan and she was always very, she's always been really awesome. Um, 
And she, she did, she again, doesn't really proselytize her veganism. She's not a, a big activist as a vegan, although she does also do rescue. Um, we both kind of fell into it around the same time. Um, but uh, she ended up getting married and I went to her, her wedding and we were standing there and she was having a vegan wedding and me and her brother at the time. And I think her dad were joking about how we wanted to leave the wedding to go get a burger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you could feel your protein levels just dropping away. Right. You know? Right. Right. <laughs> and the look on her face was just, it hurt me so much. Yeah. And I re and it just kind of, jerked me back and I was like oh that was a really really crappy thing to say and um if you know but I still didn't change I kept on going but meat then I potatoes started girl. yep I was a meat and potatoes girl nothing was going to tell me any different either but then I started following a few vegans online at the at, at the time and then I remember we had uh, a group from India come in. I was working a nine to five in, um, in an office and we had a group from India come in and there was one person that was vegetarian and we were driving in the car one day and I told her, uh, we were going to, uh, a restaurant and I told, I said, uh, don't worry, they have lots of food for you to choose from and stuff like that. And then I turned to the person in the front seat and said, don't worry, there's real food there too. And again, I felt that in my soul because I looked back and I met her eyes and she kind of turned to the person next to her and goes, real food? Really? Like, really? <laughs> and I was like, I it's felt It's deep-seated, isn't it? It's really deep-seated. Yeah. Uh, you, you, don't, you don't realize it, but it kind of made me jerk back and I was like, wait a minute. But it, it then there was a person on my Twitter feed who legitimately was just asking questions and they post various questions about morals and ethics. And one of the, the questions though, that they had asked that day is when you think of veganism, what, what word comes to mind? And I thought about it and I was like, moral. And if that's the case, then why aren't I, why aren't I, why, why aren't I vegan? If I want to be a moral being, then how is it that I believe that I'm moral, but that veganism in and, and of itself? And it's interesting you didn't answer annoying, irritating, preachy, aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> you because went with most, moral, right? Was, yeah. yeah. Because Which, most of the people, the vegans that I saw weren't like that. I did not have a, like, a, most of the vegans that I had met were in real life not on the internet yeah, that helps if they're not on yeah. twitter yeah, <laughs> yeah I, even i'm nicer when i'm not on twitter yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know i think the millions of, of people that are you know vegetarian and, and vegan most people just want to live their life and most of them would rather like cut their own throats than you know impede their self onto other people you know um, it just, uh, it, at least the ones that I knew, they legitimately did not want to like, oh, okay. Like, yes, I'm, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm vegan. Yeah. I'm sorry. And, and, isn't, and it's, and it's weird, isn't it? Isn't it, isn't it tragic that you have, 
you sort of feel that pressure to be apologetic and inquired about it because there is a tension between that that's the normal social pressure right if you're trying to change a social norm there's enormous pressure to say be quiet stay in your place keep your head down do what you want to do but don't talk to me about it versus the raw truth of what we see as an ethical horror right yeah and and then and a responsibility to speak up and do something about it it's it's one of the eternal challenges i guess within the whole you know movement and anyone who thinks about this deeply but what really helped me become more of an advocate of the animals was to to get my ethics and morals in line. And when I looked at it and I made that thing, like I would, if I saw someone being raped or murdered, I would want to stop that because I would want someone to 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 do what they could to stop it if it was happening to yeah, me. You intervene, you step in, right? Yeah. 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 And that is not considered extreme. That is not considered um, being uh, pushing your beliefs on to someone else. You're you're just stopping. You're you're helping a victim. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's that's one of the things that's central for me is that sense of recognizing that there are victims in this process, right? And that and as soon as you do that, as you do with human ethics, right? That's the essence of human ethics. You consider the perspective of the other, particularly the victim. You think about them seriously, imagine what it would be like to be them. And as soon as your moral scope extends to include certainly farmed animals in that, it's become so crystal clear. It's so clear. But unless you unless you can recognize that those victims are actually victims that exist, you know, you, you remain remain stuck by all the social norms we're so we're so used to. It really does. Like so was that and once so once you answered that question, you said, right, I think vegan, I think moral, that's because okay, it is moral. Was it then a hard transition practically and socially to do that? Or was it sort of quick and easy and your friend was helping you and you just, you know, woke up vegan in the next morning or? Yes and no. Okay. I definitely did not wake up vegan the next morning. Um, uh, because I am a, or I was a meat and potatoes girl. I also could not cook. I had no idea what I had no idea what I was doing. And I remember like maybe for a few days I was vegetarian and I just started choosing not to order the beef and not order the chicken. Um, and I started ordering black bean burgers more, but I would put cheese on it. And, uh, I was like, I know I'm weird. And, uh, like whenever I would order that, and so that kind of helped because then again, I felt like I was, I had that judginess there. And so I, I, in the end, I legitimately said, I'm going to learn how to cook. Cause I cannot stand like ordering and trying to figure out like, because I felt like these people would be judging me for, for what I was ordering. And I didn't want to make something super complex and, you know, oh, I'm going to order this, but without this and this and this and this, and then add this, 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 and this, and I'm going to learn to cook. And if I'm going to learn to cook, I'm going to learn to cook without animals and just see where I, I land. And uh, maybe I'll still eat out with it or not or whatever, but let me just see if I could go, you know, a meal. And then I had two uh, recipes and then I had three. And then I had, I went out and searched for like, because I had work, I was like, well, what can I do for work? I mean, you know, 
can I even eat sandwiches? Like, I didn't know. I had no idea. I was so ignorant. I didn't reach out to my best friend during this time either. I did oh, yeah, not. You were doing it yourself. Yeah. I was doing it completely myself because, again, I felt like I would be judged. And I was so scared to, to ask for that help. Um, and I didn't use any vegan websites. I just was like doing it myself. And I, um, and then I've learned like six months into it, I learned about Veganuary. And because um, it was in the summer that I started, and about six months later, Veganuary started, and I got so much resources. And I was like, oh, <laughs> this is what I should have been doing. <laughs> yeah. This would have made things so much easier. <laughs> yeah, cool. No, that's great. Thank you. So, and, and philosophically, you, you went from, I guess, a, a, a scope of moral consideration before that was, I guess, a pretty average, right? You cared about other humans. You did also care about animals in a sense, right? You hadn't made that connection to farmed animals and so on. Um, and then you broke through that barrier. Another reason why you and I are both pretty weird um, in a yep. good way, as with most <laughs> of my guests. Um, would you say that your moral scope is defined now? by? Because I that one of the things I'm guilty of in these conversations, I, I love leading the audience and sort of asking closed questions that imply they can only give one answer, but I'm going to do it anyway. You went from, you know, humans to, I guess, the animal kingdom, but it, you mentioned compassion and seeing the perspective of the other and the victim. Is, is it sentience that defines your moral boundary, that capacity to suffer and flourish? Is it, um, I mean, they overlap pretty well, actually. Is it, is it the animal kingdom or some people go beyond that. Some people will say, look, biocentrism or ecocentrism, where they say, look, even plants warrant moral consideration or rocks and rivers and trees and ecosystems and so on. And um, our planet, I think that our, our, we have a duty as if we believe that we are this civilized thing, this being that is so civilized, then I feel like we have a moral obligation as caretakers to take care of the other animals, plants, and, uh, and bio uh, around us. And right now we're not. As humans, we are consuming. All we do is we're just consuming as much and as quickly as we can. And that is, if we don't do anything, going to kill us and kill everything else around us. And I kind of built a, um, I actually have a motto that I live my life by. And that is when given multiple options, try to use the least shitty option. Yeah, and it's not a bad by, Yeah. By judging that metric, it helps you make all types of decisions. And that doesn't matter if you, it, when you choose to make an action or even choose to make an inaction, each thing can have a consequence. And thinking about those consequences, that is what I think most people are missing right now in their day-to-day lives. All they're worried about right now is living their lives, right? And going to work, school, whatever, and surviving. But we have a unique privilege where we can take that extra time to consider the other things and how our impact uh, is, is felt around us in the world. Yeah. And so. And, and I think there's, there's an interesting distinction because I think even some. So, so I have quite a strict sentientist view or sentiocentric view, which is that ultimately 
all value comes back down to the experience of sentient beings, you know, suffering, flourishing, life and death. That is all that matters. Now, what, what that means in practical terms is I also care very richly about the biosphere and the ecosphere in this planet we live on, because those things are super important to all the sentient beings that live on it. But I would say that's slightly different from thinking that, you know, a carrot or a rock or a river intrinsically has moral value because I don't think they can experience anything. So I think those things are important in the context of sentient beings, but I don't think, and, and, and that's one of the bugbears I bang on about in a lot of these conversations, is it feels like the modern environmental movement has gone, you know, I'm now more ready to grant rights to a, a rock or a river or a mountain than I am to a factory farmed pig that actually has the capacity to experience suffering. And I'm like, how, how did you, how did you conclude that? Right? You know, they think you think, you think cutting a carrot is morally equivalent to cutting a pig. I'm like, surely, even if you want to go beyond sentience, you still have to recognize that suffering does matter in its own right. Doesn't it in any moral system, but apparently, apparently not. Right. I think there's definitely a utilitarian view in, in my views. I think that there is a hierarchy of, of it. I would give something more, um, uh, moral acceptance and, uh, if it is something that does have sentience yeah. because. So it would put I, it on a different level. Yeah. yeah. I think everything has its own level and that's why my more, what, why my motto is try to choose the least shitty option. And you, you do have to consider those things. You have to consider, okay, what impact is this going to have on it, on me, on our community and on everything. And uh, by assessing each one of those categories, we can then make a determination of which action or inaction is the least shitty. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. So that's that's really helpful. Thank you. So you talked us through your sort of uh, journey on the moral side, your scope of moral consideration, if you like, goes beyond sentience, but you do offer a particular level of distinctive grading or privilege if you like for sentient beings that can suffer within that within that structure yeah makes sense absolutely and, and before we move off this what matters uh topic and we talked briefly before we started recording that i think we share this frustration that most moral philosophy you know and i'm an amateur in the field right so i don't academically know it all but but my sense of most moral philosophy when you read the papers uh, you know, you listen to their ideas, you learn from podcasts about these great moral philosophers. Nearly all of them seem to, seem to start with this basic assumption, which is that only humans matter. That's it. Um, and there are exceptions, of course, important exceptions, but that's the center of gravity of most moral philosophies. It's only humans, right? So the, the, the percentage of papers or thinking where you'll find any mention of non-human sentience and its moral significance is pretty small. Um, but that also almost gives us an opportunity as well, because there's quite a lot of moral philosophy work that is really clever and intelligent and well thought through, and they've, you know, worked this stuff out that you can adapt really easily if you just find the word human and replace it with sentient being, and then, you know, actually quite a lot of those moral systems can apply. And you you had a particular idea around John Rawls's yes. veil of ignorance that I know you've Absolutely. done some work on. So yeah, if you it'd be fascinating for you to sort of firstly talk us through what that veil of ignorance is in. The original sense and then how you think we should adapt it absolutely john rawls is a i i he had a very unique and interesting uh philosophical question uh and it, it was in a form of a thought experiment called the the veil of ignorance 
And uh, its purpose was... And I think, I, I can't remember the name, but I think he actually borrowed the idea or from from another philosopher whose name I can't remember, which is really embarrassing. But it's become Rawls's thing because he developed it. But yes, absolutely. And I can't think of the name of the person as well. Um, I'll have to put it in the show notes but, if I find yes, it. Yes, absolutely. Please do. Um, but he his veil of ignorance was for justice right is to con- to consider what makes a just or a fair society that was his question and uh, so it is very it was very broad and what it is is that you the person is uh you are helping design uh this society and um the, the thing about this is you don't know where you're going to end up being in the society. So if you decide to create a society of slaves and masters, you may end up being a slave or you may end up being a master. You don't know. And so by putting that veil of ignorance over of not knowing where you're going to end up being in that position in that society, then therefore you're much more likely to create a society that is fair and just. Yeah. It's almost like a more sophisticated example of, of the thing I've done with my kids where if there's a, you know, a vegan donut and they're going to need half each, you get one to cut and the other one to choose. And then it exactly. sort of forces fairness. Yeah. Absolutely. Because you don't know which, which end you're going to end up being. And when I read about that, it was right in the core area of, of when I was determining uh, my veganism and it, I, I just had a thought at that time. And I said, well, what if you didn't know if you were going to end up being a cow or a pig? Yeah. It, what if yeah. you didn't know if you were going to be a person or a fish? What would you then choose as So you put spe- you, you obscure species behind the veil as yes. well. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And by doing that, I have found that the... People, when I ask that question, their speciesism kind of drops as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because nobody wants to be, I mean, don't get me wrong, there are some people that are like, well, you know, I guess if there was vampires, then we could sign up to be it. And I was like, okay, <laughs> but not really, because you're then, you know, you would then know that you are a human and that you're choosing that. So it doesn't really work. But I think that it's a, a interesting philosophical question and something that I am actually hoping to explore more because I think that it's going to end up leading to some very interesting answers. And my hope is that uh, I'll be able to grab a bunch of people whether they be vegan or not, and legitimately put them in a, a room uh, where they are choosing a society and see what they come up with if they know that they, if they don't know whether or not they're going to be a pig or a person and see what the results are. I think it'll be really fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, and uh, again, I'm an amateur, but it, it looks like there's been some fascinating work done by people with a animal focused ethical stance to to try and develop those ideas as well. So there's a guy called Mark Rowland. Um, his work's been you know challenged and adapted by another guy called Gary Varner. Um, 
I think another one was Dombrowski, but there's a bunch of other papers that have tried to sort of develop and work on this as well. So if you're interested in some more, you know, academic stuff behind it, I've got some, I've got some references I can point. But I love that idea of putting people in a room and actually, you know, doing the thought experiment with them. Yeah. And actually I got this um, again from when I grew up, I remember watching the Tyra show of all things. And she used to do these experiments all the time where she would put someone that's skinny in a fat suit and make them walk down the, the, the world and see how, um, how different it feels, or they, she put makeup on uh, a white person and do a full prosthesis and make them look African-American yeah. and then have like them go shopping. Actually put you in the yes. perspective of the other. Yeah. And yeah. I feel like if, if something like that is, is done, then maybe we might be able to get more people to make that connection as well. And, um, and, I don't know if it will or not, but I think it would be fun to see what happens. Yeah. Well, that's a nice connection. And on to the final um, question we like to ask, which is how can we make a better future? And I guess part of my motivation behind focusing on these two questions is that it seems to me that almost every problem we're facing, particularly the human caused ones, when you chip away at it, you work out what's underneath that. Why is that happening? Why are we doing that? It's either because we've um, had a failure of compassion in some sense, right? We're excluding some suffering beings from moral consideration. They might be humans, you know, problems of tribalism that we're facing and discrimination, which, um, you know, we still have a long way to go on, absolutely applies to non-human animals. Um, you know, so we're just excluding beings that we should not exclude from our moral consideration. So that's one problem. The other one is just getting shit wrong, right? Yes, <laughs> I, absolutely. I, I, either because, you know, that we're believing things that are fabricated or made up, that we made up or that someone else made up and that just don't correspond with reality or that we're being a sort of pretend naturalist where we'll only listen to the evidence that supports what we already want to believe or we'll only do the sort of reasoning that leads us to where we already are rather than being a proper naturalist of with open-mindedness and humility exploring evidence developing reason trying to challenge our own biases look for our blind spots and believe probabilistic and provisionally anyway so so it seems like if, if, if every problem either comes down to we've just got shit wrong or we've had a failure of compassion, that's part of the motivation behind trying to persuade people to commit to you know, naturalistic epistemology and a sentiocentric compassion that doesn't exclude any suffering being. So if we can persuade 7.8 billion people to become sentientists, we'll solve all the world, world's problems. Um, <laughs> and so, through, through, through podcasts and YouTubes and, of course. You know, and Facebook groups, of course, that's the power. Um, Right, I should stop lecturing and ranting now. But um, I do think they're important planks for thinking about making the future better. They're not sufficient. You have to build loads of other stuff on top of that, and there's still so many different things to fight about. But they seem sensible foundations, right? Engage with the reality honestly to try and understand it with humility, and at least all suffering beings should matter as we work out what to do. Um, but nearly everybody on the planet disagrees with us, despite the fact that they seem quite self-evident, right? So, um, and it's interesting that, you know, there are many people who disagree with both. There are many dis people who disagree with one, but not the other. And, and sometimes those people are even more frustrating. That's the people who have a sentiocentric compassion. You know, they're, they're maybe vegan, they're animal advocates, they genuinely care, but they still believe a load of crazy shit that's totally unfounded in evidence. And then even more frustrating, I find, is the atheists, the humanists, the skeptics, the rationalists, for whom non-human animal ethics is like kryptonite 
And so yeah. these people are so proud of the fact that they've used evidence and reason to break challenging indoctrinations and social norms, to turn away from harmful traditions, to find a more compassionate way forward. But they still can't get animal ethics. I mean, they, blows they my won't. mind. Yeah, <laughs> they, they won't or they, they just, they can't. They're just at, not at that point. They're at the point of where I was when I was a meat and potatoes girl. Me too, right? And, that, and in a way that can help us engage with compassion because we can remember who we used to be right we weren't bad people we were just you know we were just blind to a different set of blinkers but i guess i find it doubly frustrating with that community because they're so proud of the fact they see their own blind spots except for this one <laughs> and, and that's certainly something that you know we have um we've fought against haven't we with uh on on twitter and things like Work that is, is it's definitely going to be uh hard but i think that's why it needs we need all of the various voices um why doing things like this podcast is so important is because you never know what is going to end up being that light bulb for somebody else you don't know what is the what topic is going to light that that fuse and and it's one of the main reasons why i put veganism and uh, all of those things into my writing is because if we can get people when they are being entertained and stuff to be thinking about these things in a different way, in a different context, then they might be much more inclined to think about it in the greater context because of the fact it's not somebody that's just trying to proselytize to them. It's that it's having the conversations, it's reading about it in an entertaining way. It's getting them in, 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 in different ways. Cause as I said, we never know what's going to stick. Yeah, yeah. And 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 you've hinted again at a bunch of the different visions for the future we might have. And I'd guess that you, as well as some of my guests, if I asked you for a sort of utopian vision, you might refer to Star Trek again, which many people come back to as like, you know, that's where we could be, right? Intellectually curious, scientifically minded, compassionate, you know, uh, and vegan, uh, vegan as they were, right? They had. Wouldn't they had it be lovely? Needs. Yeah, yes. exactly. Wouldn't um, it be lovely? <laughs> but then again, you also you also work very hands on, you know, with your volunteering with shelters and actually helping animals in that way, and through your business too. Um, but this, your idea of using writing as an influence, I think, is really interesting to me as well because I've done some amateurish writing myself, but it tends to be the proselytizing, right? It's, you know, it's banging people over the head with the message and going, "Look, this is bloody obvious. You have to agree with me," which, you know, it probably isn't that useful so yeah how do you you know how do you go about that in your writing of you know to entertain and make people think and so on but but feeding in some of these messages that you enjoyed from the tv programs you watched as a kid where there is a you know there's a moral there's a message yeah i think it's just kind of coming up with a fun ways to have these thought experiments you know uh, sometimes i'll have a book that's just about plato's cave and um, where it's legitimately Plato's cave and they are searching their way out and uh, just getting them to think about these philosophical questions um, through the characters and getting people to connect to number one with the characters because they're not going to connect with any of your themes or underlying moral stance and ethics or anything along those lines if they do not connect with the with the characters. But I also don't um, like to put a bunch of things all at once, you know, into it. So I might have 
in one story have someone who already has chosen to to be vegan and maybe in another one they enter into a society that is much like me going to Mobile, Alabama, and they had uh, a struggle with this new life and uh, dealing with the new culture. You know, these are all stories that other people who have moved multiple places can relate to. And so finding the ways that we can relate and have empathy and compassion towards those storylines, we can then merge them into these stories and, and create these wonderful thought experiments for people to to actually bring forth into their everyday lives yeah i love it and and as you say you never quite know where the ripples may end up and you know the webs of influence you might have on your readers and then they might have on other people as well i I like that sense of you know on the one hand can sometimes feel a little frustrating you know it's a big world you know what can we do right we're just a small part but i think we can reassure ourselves with you never quite know where those ripples will end up so just keep sending them out and uh Let's see what happens. As a child, I remember watching Captain Planet, and that has definitely lasted until now of why I am environmentally, um, you know, inclined. And so, it, you know, you watch things like Fern Gully and, you know, maybe Avatar and, you know, these other, uh, these other entertainments, and they do, they stick into your, your, your the back of your mind and then later when you're looking back after you've already made it you're like oh these are all things that have helped me make get to the point of where i am and i think fundamentally understanding that it really does change how you approach things i'm not going to hit people over the head with a sledgehammer because it's not that's not going to work we know this already as we were meat eaters back in the day we know how irritating that is but there is a place for some people to be that way so that way we can see exactly hey this is not this maybe isn't how i want to be as a person and uh, And i think and and it's something i i'm you know i'm not particularly good at myself and i do struggle with it because i tend to be um a little bit more look here's here's the answer let's engage in a technical discussion and you know, and then everyone will agree with me, right? And so I'm, I'm like, well, why do I need a story? Why do I need a narrative? And it's bloody obvious, you need a narrative, you need a story. If you want to hook people, you want to help people think in creative ways. So, you know, I get a little frustrated when, you know, Yuval Noah Harari, for example, who I think is another suspected sentientist, right? Because again, he's vegan, he has a naturalistic worldview and so on. But he talks about the importance of stories and narratives. And I'm like, okay, no, I do agree, right? We do need the stories and narratives, but let's just be clear about the stories that are grounded in reality, the ones that are deliberately fiction and the ones that are fiction, but people believe in. And, you know, maybe that's my nervousness about narrative, but I think you you can be clear about what's fiction and what isn't. That's not hard to do. And you can also wind real world themes and messages into really compelling stories. And one of my previous guests, Howie Jacobson, said he is like, that's one of my hesitations about sentientism in a way, right? It's just evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. I mean, great, right? Who who could disagree with that? It's sort of obvious. But you know, we need the stories, we need the narrative, we need something that will engage people beyond that. And I totally agree, right? It's it's not enough just to have a sort of philosophical platform. You've got to do what you're doing, which is you know, we have a story and, um, and reach people where they are. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 
And that if, if people didn't do the same for me, I don't think I would have made those steps. I would have still been the meat and potatoes girl, uh, you know, bashing my head against it because, you know, people, but it, it was the people to take that time. And I, I had lots of questions and to answer those questions and to, to not be judgy, you know, um, I think it's hard sometimes when we do think that we have the answers to not come off as condescending or, um, judgy or things like that. And that's something that I tried to be very, um, conscientious of, but again, that's probably because of my upbringing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. But, those themes yeah. are still there. But I think that's, that's an important part of, you know, if we're going to be serious about universal compassion for all sentient beings, um, that includes people we disagree with on Twitter. And that includes ourselves as well. And those can be difficult things to do. Sometimes we can be so compassionate about the plight of farmed animals that can lead us to, you know, act in non-compassionate ways with our fellow humans. And it's understandable why, yes. right? But is it really helpful? And is it really the best moral approach too? Exactly. Because yeah. again, you have to think about it in a utilitarian uh, aspect. Will this get us to where we need to be? Um, I think that having compassion and empathy is going to get us to where we want to be faster than um, not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how um, I'm going to respect your time because I've run over a load already. How does that leave you feeling overall about our prospects for the future? Do you feel optimistic, pessimistic, somewhere in between? I look at it like um, when people ask me about it, and I'm going to take a little bit of a, of a journey, but when I think about veganism and um, the other things, I just think about how smoking, how, how did smoking happen, right? Um, we had millions and millions of people smoking, and then slowly over the decades, we found out the dangers of it, and it's still, it slowly weaned out. So I don't know if we will ever see it in our lives where the majority of people are, are vegans, are, are sentients, uh, but I feel like we're at least going to be helping make uh, the awareness so that way the journey will then um, we will be in there. But there's still probably going to be meat eaters, you know, later on in it. You know, there's going to be people that regardless are going to do what they what they want and they're, they're not going to care about the moral considerations at all. And I don't know if there's anything we can do about that. But yeah, I mean, we have those problems for people who think that way about humans as well. And then ultimately, we do use the law to constrain them to prevent them from doing harm. So who knows one day? <laughs> Maybe, but I, I don't know if it would be within our lives. But yeah, I do yeah. think that there is a possibility of of it happening, because I think that as we grow as a as a society, it, it feels like it's the the natural response to those questions. But I think we're going to take many steps back before we can step forward. Yeah, yeah. And do you think as we push forward on the non-human animal agenda, that is positively correlated with problems in human ethics, negatively correlated, like there's a trade-off, we have to choose where to focus, or are they independent things in your mind? Uh, to me, they're the same. Like all of, like I 
I think of myself as a feminist. I think of myself as uh, someone who is, I guess, progressive. And I feel that they are in line with it. We want people to not be um, abused and we want them to have the same rights. And so I'm fighting for all the same things. I'm just saying I want these other considerations as well. So I feel like it's the same fight regardless. And when people are going to look back, they're going to look back and see that. But I think in order to, it's going to be hard to get, you know, freedom and um, consideration when we haven't done that for humans. So there is a little bit of a step. Yeah, we have to take. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's been uh, fascinating getting to know you. And thank you so much for sharing your journey. You give me a lot of hope for the future as well, because there's something in the zeitgeist at the moment that, you know, everyone's locked in a tribal dogma. No one will change their minds, uh, you know, whatever the evidence, whatever the reasoning. But you have, um, you know, changed your mind on probably two of the most contentious socially indoctrinated topics there are. So, um, yeah, much hope for the future of um the ripples from your writing can spread out and more people will follow your lead. So it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And a pleasure is all mine as well. It's been such a joy. What's the best way of people following you, learning more about your work, um, reading your writing on Wattpad and uh, watching your videos on YouTube? Oh, yes. Uh, Those are the ways to get in touch with me. I'm on Twitter. I'm on um, YouTube, definitely making videos. Um, You can also find me on World Anvil. Uh, I'm hoping to create some stuff with the veil of ignorance on the world anvil soon. So worldanvil.com. Um, I hope that you'll be able to put some of those links on the, the description, but Absolutely. yeah, I yeah. hope that everybody will join us in, in on the conversation. Yeah. Here's to more productive conversations. Yeah. Let's hope. Thank you so much again. Take care Thank and I'll let you get on with the rest of your day. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?